Hello, and welcome to another episode of Uncorked with Funny Wine Girl. This is Funny Wine Girl, aka Janine Luby. And uh, as I'm starting August, this is, uh, we've been, last week we had Dr. Leonard, uh, Katie Leonard of uh, Johnson College, president of, of the Johnson College. And we had a great conversation about, you know, changing people's minds about schools that really are heavily involved with promoting trades. Of course, they're doing much more there now, trying to get uh, more women in uh, predominantly male roles and also vice versa, some more male students into predominantly female roles, uh, careers. So that was a great conversation. In August, I'm going to continue with kind of that theme. Uh, we're getting back to school. We're getting in that mindset of back to school. So today's topic uh, is actually going to be, you know, normally I like to have a little bit of humor and a lot of laughs uh, sprinkled throughout. This is going to be a change in that it's going to be a very serious topic. So um, we might have a couple of laughs in the beginning where we're just talking about to each other, but as we get into the topic, it will be more serious. So I just want to give you that heads up. And I know it's a very important topic. We're going to be talking about school shooting, school safety. And obviously that is a really important topic that uh, is not something to be taken lightly at all. So before I actually introduce my guests, I always like to say how I know people because I just think it's not to say, oh, look at me and who I know. That's not it at all. But just how I think it's so important that we take opportunities to meet people, to try new things. And you never know how these people are going to return in your life somehow. And you're going to be connected, uh, might, how you might be able to help one another out, uh, just show up for you know each other in, in different ways. So today's guest, I have Amy Archer. And Amy and I met uh, in 2012. Um, actually, I don't know that we actually physically met, but I remember seeing her on stage. We both did the Scranton Story Slam, the very first one, which I'm, you know, I'm pretty proud that I was part of that. It was really fun. 2012, which feels like forever ago. And I, I didn't have the aches and pains that I have now as I hit 50. And uh, I felt much more vivacious then. But um, I remember us doing that. And it was warning signs was the theme. And Amy actually won with her very humorous story. She talked, I remember, about Weight Watchers, and she has a memoir out called Fat Girl Skinny. And like I said, she's, you know, she's been a writer. Uh, she's a mom. She was a writing coordinator at the University of Scranton, and she just accepted a new position, actually. So she is the, she can correct me, uh, therapist, uh, Com. She's the head writer and editor. And what we want to talk about today, like I said, we're going to take a serious turn is her involvement on a really important book called If I Don't Make It, I Love You. It's Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shooting. So enough of my talk. And I'd like to uh, thank my guests for joining me and welcome Amy Archer. Welcome. Hi, thank you. And I am going to correct you. I'm a senior writer. At oh, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I knew I didn't get it quite right. So I have a, um, a brilliant editor in chief over me and I just don't want to sideline her. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So you're senior writer at therapist.com. Okay. Mm -hmm. And before we get into the topic for the day, uh, so what is therapist.com about? Because I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. So therapist.com is a website where clinicians and therapists can uh, list their practice. And our, our goal is to connect people with therapy and to make therapy and mental health resources more accessible for everyone. So there's going to be some articles on there. There'll be um, some, what we're calling pillar pieces. So like, what is ADHD? And then, you know, everything is sort of vetted by different mental health professionals. And that's, you know, our, our tagline is where um, hope meets help. And I think that's a great summary of what we do. 
And it's backed by, I don't know if you're familiar with PESI, but PESI has been providing uh, continuing education to every, beyond the counseling field, but mostly in the counseling field um, for 40 years. So this is their new venture and I'm really, really proud to be part of it. That's wonderful. And it's, it's something, I mean, I think it ties in uh, with today's topic too. I mean, mental yeah. health is a piece of, well, it's a piece of pretty much everything. Um, you know, it's a piece of our, our overall health. It is health and it is so important. So no, that's, that sounds absolutely vital and, and wonderful. So congratulations on your role. That's got to be rewarding work. It's nice when you're Thank doing you. something that you feel you can actually make an impact, isn't it? Yeah. It's really interesting how I got here because I left education to come here, but it was sort of like I had been building towards this ever since I started working on the book with the um, gun violence survivors, I've been really, really interested in mental health and trauma and PTSD. So I've been kind of writing about those things and then all the stars aligned and just kind of brought me here. And I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. I, I love hearing stories like that because sometimes we get impatient in life. I'm not saying you, but be like younger people myself <laughs> through the years, yeah. but you sometimes don't realize how things are actually gelling bef- and then you're like, wow, yeah. here I am. So that's, that's wonderful. So let's get into, um, I do want to talk about how you got drawn to that project. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I want to mention too, to our listeners that you are a mom yourself. So, mm-hmm. now, I mean, obviously school security and school safety and children's uh, health and wellness, their safety is, is a factor. It is important to all of us in the community, but obviously I can't tell you that I feel exactly a hundred percent the same as someone who's not a mom, because I'm not, I don't have those fears. I don't have worries as much, you know, because sure. I don't have a child. So you do though. So as a mom, so I don't know wherever you want to start. If you want to just tell me first, what got you into the project? And then we'll talk a little bit about what it means to you as a mom, as a, you know, your background as an educator and all those different facets that you brought to the project. Sure. So, so one thing I do want to say, and I, I appreciate that kind of introduction, but I do want to say that gun violence don't, doesn't only affect parents. Like, even though you don't have children that you have to send to school, you still probably have to worry in the back of your mind when you're in a grocery store, if you're going to a concert, if you're going to a shopping mall, this is kind of that fear is pervasive and it goes beyond parenting, but you're right. And I do appreciate that there is this extra level when you're now sending your children to school, which is supposed to be the most sacred of all places. So I do acknowledge that. Um, So my girls, I have twins and they were six when Sandy Hook happened. So I was drawn to the gun violence prevention movement after that. I joined Moms Demand Action. I've been, you know, kind of, I was active with them for, you know, five, six, seven years. And then it just kept happening. And I I just, I was so changed by that day. Like I just couldn't let it go. And I couldn't, understand I didn't understand because I don't think they were calling it this yet but us as a nation as parents we really have suffered some vicarious trauma through these events like there is this inclination I think in people to want to avoid being voyeuristic like oh I shouldn't be upset over Sandy Hook because my kids weren't there but you know, if you're a citizen and you're a human being, of course you should be empathetic and grieve for those children and and have empathy for the parents. So I think we were all kind of swept up in this collective trauma and we didn't know how to name it or what to do with it. And then you had people like Shannon Watts who were going out and starting Moms Demand and, you know, a lot of moms and and just women in the community and men were drawn to that as, as parents. So 
I think I just realized at some point that I needed to do something more and I needed to use my writing to help. So I was talking with my co-editor, Lauren Kleiman, and we were talking about um, our next project because we had done an anthology together on body image and we enjoyed working together. Like we found we worked well together and you know yourself when you're in the arts, that's rare. So we were like, oh, let's do something else together. (laughs) So um, I had, you know, I had said to her, well, I'm, I'm doing something on gun violence, like period. So she, she was very interested in it. And we decided to start. So um, with the help of some of my friends in the Moms Demand Action Group, I was able to not break into, but kind of ease my way into this very sacred space of survivors of these shootings and begin to work with them and earn their trust and help them to tell their stories. So in the end, and we were, I think we were only a month into the project when Parkland happened. So that kind of reaffirmed what we were doing. And in the end, we have, I think, over 80 stories. There's 70 in the book. And then we have a bunch on a digital archive um, on our website. And so, I th- yeah, I think there's like 72 in the book, firsthand stories. And they span 52 years and 26 different communities. Oh, wow. So we start with... The very first story in the book is from uh, Santa Fe, Texas, and that shooting happened in May of 2018, I want to say. I apologize if I get some of these dates wrong. I have so many dates in my head, no, that's for, fine. For the, in my head for this. Um, and I worked with Rhonda Hart. Her daughter, Kimberly, was murdered at Santa Fe school in her art classroom. Rhonda had just had this happen and was not able to write for us. So with her permission, I used her tweets and I made a visual story. So like some, you know, not all of these stories are written. Some are interviews, some are visual, but the majority of them are narratives. So that's the first story you have in the book. And then it goes all the way back to the University of Texas, Austin Tower shooting in 19, I'm going to get this one wrong, 51, 52, something like that. I'm not sure. I apologize. 1960, maybe. Anyway. So the uh, 1966, that's the the University of Texas Tower shooting. So we have survivors from there and everything in between. Columbine, the shootings that happened around Columbine that no one seems to know about. Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook. So it, it was, it took us two years. The book came out in September of 2019 and it's coming out in paperback this October. Oh, okay. All right. And so that's know, what drew me to it. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting, and you say you say that, you know, that one is 1966. When we think of school shootings, we think more recent, right? So yeah. I, I was, you know, I wouldn't have even, obviously it's silly to think, obviously we've had crime for, you know, sure. the longest time, but sure. you don't think of school shootings having uh, taken place that long ago. At least we don't, we're not, you know, we're focused on what's happening now because it seems to be increasing. But right. yeah, I wouldn't even have thought that it was spanned back that far. And obviously it's the same trauma, the same uh, horrible result when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. So I just grabbed my copy to double check. It is August 1st, 1966 was the University of Texas shooting. And then Santa Fe was May 2018. So all those in between. And I'm telling you, Janine, I could fill six more books. Like I I had not, I considered myself pretty like well-researched on school shootings with all of my advocacy work. 
there were so many that I had not even heard of, had no idea that they happened. So this is something that a lot of people um, associate Columbine with the first shooting, and it really wasn't. There were a bunch leading up to Columbine that were very similar. You know, they were in, in suburban white America, perpetrated by young white men. So very similar blueprint to kind of what has been happening, but um, we just, we didn't really know about it, maybe because we didn't have the 24-hour news cycle. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, now everything is, well, and it's almost reliving the trauma, I think, in some cases. It's so much, I mean, it's, yeah. it's good to be informed, but at the same time, it's like, you know, and like you said, Columbine, we hear, we remember that one, but we don't even know about the other, the ones that aren't reported or aren't, be, yeah. don't become the it story or whatever. Uh, you mentioned something, and I don't want to get off topic, but you mentioned something that I've, you know, I, I, I'm one of these people that screams at the TV. Like <laughs> I talk to the TV when the news is on and everything. Yep. And the one thing that I don't feel that it's covered really well. And maybe I ha I've missed it. I don't know. You've, you've been in it in the advocacy group. So maybe you've seen it. This idea of, like you said, the blueprint, I, I notice even not just school shootings, but, you know, violence against women and different places, like with the incels, it seems to be a lot of like angry young white mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. um, and even not just uh, young, but then you get into thirties, forties, it's a lot of like these angry white men. Um, mm -hmm. I have not seen that topic addressed well enough because I mean, we want to talk prevention. It's like, what is going on with these men? That's, you yeah. know, this is how they're showing their emotions or how they're dealing with things or whatever. I don't know. Have, maybe have you seen this covered at all or talked about or addressed? Yeah, in some it's, it's talked about a lot in the um, gun violence prevention circles. There's, you know, it's really, it's hard to, talk about what's happening without getting political. And unfortunately that's where it usually devolves into. Hmm. So, um, you know, I don't currently think there's much productive talk around it, but I do think that we're aware of it. It's obvious. I just don't think communities know what to do about it. Hmm. And I, I think it's a much larger picture. Um, you know, violence against women is, a horrific crime that's been happening for, for centuries. And we just don't know how to deal with it. I think I come from the viewpoint of making it harder to get a gun is always better. Um, if you are a responsible law abiding gun owner, you know, like my husband is like my father-in-law is like many in my community are hunters, then you should have your gun. No problem. But if you are somebody who's beaten up your wife who, you know, has a felony on your record, you should not be able to get one. And I think those are some of the laws that we see passing now, these red flag laws. Like if you've perpetrated violence against a woman in your life, you're not going to get a gun. Or if you have some kind of violent criminal uh, act on your record, you will not get a gun. So things like that, I think are a good first step. But, you know, obviously you look at some of these shooters and they don't have a record or they've never done anything wrong, which was the case in Columbine. Like they, they were um, what we would consider today, probably like juvenile delinquents, you know what I mean? But they, they weren't criminals. And I, I can't tell you how many times when I was researching these shootings, it's always the parent's gun. Nine times out of 10, it's the parent's gun. So do we start there? I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely, I think 
you'll hear a lot of people talking about mental health, investing in mental health. I think that's really important. Um, I think the new gun violence prevention bill that is being passed through Congress right now that was signed um, by the president, I think that throws a buttload of money at mental health. I hope. <laughs> so we'll see. I mean, I, I, I'm not somebody who sits here and thinks it's only the guns, right? It's definitely mental health. It's definitely a social issue. It's definitely, but but America has the most, we have the most guns. We arm these people until we can figure it out. And that's, I think, where the problem is. So I think, you know, if you if you look at the kids who were became activists after Parkland, we call them the Parkland kids, but they're not kids anymore. Um, they are doing great things by pulling both sides to the table, having rational, non-political conversations, and talking about how we're all going to come together and solve this. And I think that's kind of what we have to do. But yes, identifying that we have a problem with angry young white men in this country is definitely on a lot of people's radar. Yeah. I mean, I watch like even some of the things, the documentaries on Netflix, and uh, I taught for about seven years part-time at King's. Yeah. And it was one of my students who told me about these incels. And I'm like, yep. oh my God, it was like an HBO special. I'm like, I never heard this term. Yeah. And I like, it's upsetting. You know, I mean, hatred for any group is, is, you know, horrible. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you know, you take personally what is to you, I'm a woman. So to see these yeah. young men like that are just, you know, kind of coming together over a hatred for women and, yep. and, and like seeing the men who go out and, and perpetrate violence against women as their heroes, it's it's very disturbing. Um, so yeah, that's that's we do need to to I mean start somewhere. And, and you mentioned the Parkland kids, so to speak. If they can bring people together and they are young and they have the energy, I mean, mm -hmm. we need that. We absolutely do. Like you said, unfortunately, these conversations devolve into the the politics. Yeah. It's a shame that that's what has to derail. Uh, because I always like to say that, you know, I, I'm friends with people who, who vote for the other party, so to speak. And mm -hmm. I think the bottom line is we agree on so much more than we disagree on. I think if we could just stop and think about that, like, do we all have people in our lives we care about and love? Of course. Right. Do we all have, you know, we have to, uh, to make a living and bills to pay. Of course, we all want a good quality of life to enjoy our weekends, our vacations, our time with, you know, of course we agree on those, so many of those things sure. that we value. It's too bad that the politics absolutely gets us uh, sometimes nowhere in the way, right? Yeah, it really does. It really does. I, I, I always make sort of a half-hearted joke that I wish I didn't know who my neighbors were. Like, I wish I didn't know this neighbor XYZ down the road, you know, votes for this person. Like, I don't need to know that. If I, if I visit your shop and you're cool and we get along or you're my neighbor and, you know, we both love our kids and send them to school and do this and do that. I don't, I don't need to know your politics. Like, I wish I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it used to be that way. Right. Yeah. I know when I used to date, it was mm -hmm. like, or even with family, oh my gosh. And you know, this is a lighthearted thing going to my, uh, my relatives uh, at Thanksgiving and everything. And I loved my uncle uh, so dearly. And we had opposing viewpoints, but we did it in a way yeah. that we come together after several glasses of wine <laughs> and still love each other. And we'd yeah. get it, we'd have it out. He'd harass me for my views and I'd harass mm -hmm. him a little poke fun. But we, but otherwise we, you know, you'd say, don't talk about religion and politics. Now it's like everyone has to kind of almost put it in your face. And like, I think it yeah. is taking away from that identity of like 
we're humans, we're neighbors, we're yeah. community members. Uh, I, I will say one local, and I don't like to get into that stuff with the business, but when you put it in my face and I'm at your business and you're wearing that t-shirt, you yeah. know, that let's go Brandon t-shirt, uh, <laughs> you're letting me know something that you want to let me know. And I'm like, right. okay, I can get bagel somewhere else. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, like exactly. Because there's so many, I mean, is that really important? You know, is that yeah. you have to put that shirt on this morning instead of wearing what every other employee is wearing, which is the bagel store logo. You know, I mean, it boggles my mind that business owners do that for either side. Yes, exactly. Like you're, you're automatically alienating a large portion of your customer base. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. And it's not necessary, right? Because it's mm -mm. like, if you have a, a business and it's doing well, you're mm -hmm. doing a good job there. People mm -hmm. enjoy, they're coming in, they're buying. Why do you have to show us your yeah. politics? And again, yeah. it's not like we have to agree. Like I was fine yeah. until then. I'm like, you made a choice mm -hmm. to do this today mm -hmm. when all your employees are wearing the, you know, the logo shirts. Yep. So now I'm kind of annoyed, <laughs> but I mean, I didn't care before then. I don't care if we, we don't have right. to agree right. at all. And like you yeah. said, on either side, I just don't think it has to be there, but, um, but I don't want to get off topic. Um, so I wanted to ask you, so with all this, all these stories, these great stories, I don't mean great. I mean, valuable stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, what would you say was either like, well, two questions really a common thread that you saw if you did mm -hmm. find one mm -hmm. and, and what you felt you learned like you walked away from the project having learned mm, I learned so much I mean it, it was it it was a year and a half that nearly broke me in some ways but also lifted me in some ways too like it was just I when I at the culmination of the book so it came out in September 2019 and in December of 2019 um for the seventh anniversary Sandy Hook I went up to Newtown, and I had the pleasure of reading with several of the survivors in the book, and I was introducing them, and I was like, this is what everything has brought me to, you know what I mean? Like, there I was crying on my couch for a week in 2012, and here I am introducing these people and letting them tell their stories to a community. Like, it was just such a, a wild journey for me, and I just think if I've learned anything good, that it was to, I guess, the power of the story, you know? So I meet so many people. I've toured with this book. I've traveled and spoken in front of a lot of groups with this book. I've cried with so many groups while I was reading from this story or from this book while I was reading survivor stories. And I just treat them as something so sacred that I hold and I share with people. And when I share these stories, it's hard for people to forget it. It's hard for people to turn away and to close off to something. So, you know, I went into this project and I remember when I was talking to the survivors very early on and I was kind of pitching this to them, I said to them, it's my hope and it still is my hope that someday this, you know, our grandchildren will read this book like we read The Diary of Anne Frank, like an insight into some horrific tragedy that we've learned from and have moved past. And that's my hope. And I guess I'm just so moved by first person narratives that, you know, this really kind of solidified how important they are. Um, I've seen a lot of common threads, mainly around, so my co-editor and I, split up the book in that I worked with K through 12 and she worked with colleges and universities for the most part, there were some exceptions, but for the most part, that's what we did. 
And I saw, because I was also sort of the same age as the Columbine kids when that happened. So I, I just feel like I was kind of parallel to, to them in a lot of ways. And when I went back, I saw so many people from that time, there's four or five shootings right in a cluster of like four or five years there in the nineties that just, they were so haunted by their trauma and they had no resources and no help and no name for it. And it was very, you know, I remember in Heath high school, which happened in Kentucky and I want to get that year, right. It was right before, hold on. I apologize. It was 97. December 1st, 1997, Heath High School. Um, survivors there telling me that, you know, they called the community in to like scrub the blood off of the floors and the walls and get put the school back together and come back to school like the next day. Cause the principal was like, we just got to keep going. We got to keep going. And that was, you know, if you think about the mindset, like in the nineties, that's kind of what it was. You know, it was this, like, we don't have time to sit around and feel things. Like we need to just keep going. So I think we've done those survivors a real disservice as a community because they had no resources. And so many of them turned to drugs and alcohol and toxic relationships and, you know, have mental health issues um, and have, you know, some have thrived in spite of having no resources, but we just, I, I feel like now, thankfully, I wish this wasn't still a problem that we have to address, but luckily, you know, we have started to pay attention to mental health and to the needs of the survivors, and we have started to provide them resources. Still not enough, but, you know, you see what's going on in Washington. We can't even get people to vote for, for rights for uh, veterans, so I don't know how we're going to get these survivors what they need, but they need a lot more than they're getting. They're getting some mental health resources sent right to the site. They're getting, you know, stuff like that. But a lot of these people are living with injuries still to this day from their shootings and stuff and have to worry about getting health care. So I think, you know, if, if there's one thread that I've seen throughout, it's that we're not doing enough for these people. We're asking them every day by walking into a school to take their life into their own hands because we cannot give up the idea of everybody having a gun in this country, yet we don't want to help them. And it's very similar to what's happening with the veterans right now. It's frustrating. I mm -hmm. mean, that's really frustrating. Um, and, you know, you know, we talked a little bit before. It's not just you, you're, you know, you're someone that's not, you know, it's not just the guns. It's, it's a lot of different, yeah. different issues, but what, if you feel comfortable sharing your opinion, where do you think it has to be this kind of combination of a variety of things like, you know, more mental health resources, mm -hmm. like you said, uh, what can we do prevention wise? I mean, um, you know, I mentioned to you uh, off before we record it and you had said you hadn't heard about it. I just thought it was interesting before I got online to record with you. I just heard about another book that's out there now about school shooting. I shouldn't say about school shootings, about school security, right? So there's a Scranton police officer, a former police officer who has a book out now that's uh, it's called The Risk Assessment Blueprint. It's school security. And I caught a little bit of his interview uh, a couple weeks ago. It was on with Nikki Stone. I just listened for a few minutes and he was saying uh, more or less that there needs to be more training of 
he doesn't believe in uh, active shooter training with kids because Nikki had said, you know, that's brought up that could be traumatizing for the kids. And he said he agrees that it should be more with the law enforcement needs the more training. And he said they need to be trained more mentally because he says the body can't go where the mind doesn't. And he said the, they have to be prepared to take this on. Uh, and he also talked about identifying problems in the classroom with, you know, certain, certain children, mm-hmm. uh, and being prepared in that way. Um, so, you know, that's just what I picked up from, from before. So we know it's not a, a simple answer, obviously. Yeah. Right. What do you, in your opinion, as someone who's, who's researched, uh, who's been in advocacy groups, who's a mother, what, what's your hope or what would you like to see going forward? I think it is a combination of things, but I think until we figure that out, like, it's so hard to just say, we have a problem with toxic masculinity in this country and we have to change that or we're radicalizing young white boys. How do you change that overnight? You can't. Or, you know, we have a problem with, I don't know, people say this all the time, violent video games, I don't believe in that, but whatever. Like, if you if you did consider that was a problem, okay? Or, you know, something like that. These things are are social systemic issues that will take decades to change. So in the meantime, let's just make it harder for those people to get a gun. Like, that's how I feel. Um, I think we should ban assault weapons. I think, you know, when it it was funny because Lauren and I went up to uh, Woodstock, New York for a weekend and locked ourselves into this farmhouse that was donated generously to us from a patron. And we, we had to do this major editing on the book. Our editor was like, it's 30 word, 30,000 words too long. So, you know, you have to make some tough decisions there, but we story, I remember like listing on a storyboard, like all the shootings. And there's this period of time where like, it just drops dramatically. And you can't help but visually see that that was when we had the assault weapons ban after Columbine. And then it lapsed with George W. Bush in 2004. And there is this like breathing space. Like, was there public, were there mass shootings in that? I I believe there was some, of course, but the number of them had declined just so much. So it was really interesting to see that visually. Um, I will say this about police. I've not read this gentleman's book. I don't know who he is, so I can't speak to that. But I will say the idea that the the folks who are in the gun violence prevention movement being antithetical to the police is really, it's just not right. It's not correct because when you think about it, gun violence is a police issue as well. I feel all the time that we do our policemen and our, our you know first responders such a disservice by asking them to show up to these calls where it's a domestic dispute and nine times out of 10, there's going to be a gun on the scene. Like these people have to put their lives in so much more danger than is necessary. And I just feel bad for them. And, and a lot of times, you know, I'm, Uvalde was something totally different, but a lot of times if you have a young cop and they make a mistake, it's because they're, they're terrified and I don't blame them. Like you can only train somebody so much to walk into a room with somebody with an AR-15 or, you know, whatever. So I do think that, and, and police um, communities that I've spoken with do think there needs to be something done here because they're facing this on the front lines. And we're not asking them to be soldiers and to go into war zones. We're asking them to be community police officers. 
Those two things should be different, but they're not in this country because everybody's armed so heavily. So I, I, you know, I, I tend to just kind of listen to what police say because they deal with this stuff all the time. And have there been mistakes made? Of course. But I don't, I personally don't think, and I'm not saying that this gentleman is advocating this in any way. Again, I have not read the book, so I don't know. But sometimes you will hear out of the policing community, more guns in schools. I don't think that's the answer. I think we can't put that on teachers. We just really can't. Um, I've been a teacher. Teach. I, I taught at the college level. I haven't taught K through 12, but I could tell you as a mother of two kids who've gone through K through 12 system, those teachers have enough on their plates. They don't need to be marksmen now with weapons. So I think, you know, it's a combination of a bunch of things. But in the meantime, we need to stop arming people who shouldn't have guns. Yeah, yeah, exactly what you said. And I agree with you about, I mean, teachers certainly do have enough on their plates, although I will say that having those uh, plans and knowing what to do is important because I will say, and this is not to take away from Kings, but when I did teach there again, I was part-time, you know, there really wasn't much of a plan as to, cause I was teaching in rooms where there was only one way in and one way out yeah. uh, on this, on the corner, in the corner of the building, the second floor. And sometimes I would think, and like, to your point earlier that I don't have children, but it has crossed my mind. Cause you know, sure, teaching of course. Kings, I thought, what mm-hmm. if a student is disgruntled or what yeah. if someone comes in from the community, I would teach in this corner room. And I'm like, there's really no way out, honestly, because we couldn't really jump from the fourth floor there. And like, I, so being prepared, I think is important and communication as always, I'm a big proponent of any kind of communication because that's when I think all kinds of issues happen, but yeah, so it is good to be prepared, but like you said, not to put that burden of having more guns, you know, that's just a, that would not help. I don't think. I remember when we started doing active shooter training at the university, I refused to participate because I was like, I'm not normalizing this. I'm not letting this happen. And then I realized like, I'm doing such a disservice to my students if I don't learn what to do if this happens. So I do think teachers and staff absolutely need to know what to do in these situations. And you know, there's some really good research out there that that is starting to show that the I hate even saying this sentence, but that the casual need, casualties have been lower because of some of the precautions taken. There should be no casualties, but um, I do think you know the schools have a responsibility to invest in certain security protocol, like doors that lock, you know, whatever, whatever they need to do. But the answer is 100% not arming teachers. Number one, teachers are a helping profession. They're there to help people. They are not equipped mentally, emotionally, and physically to take someone's life. I mean, if they have to, sure they will. But shooting someone is a big deal. I mean, I, I can't, I don't know if I could do it. So it's it's really, it's it's burdensome to ask them to do that and not... And, you know, if they want to put money in schools for counselors, that's a good thing. Teaching your children and talking with your children about signs to, you know, all, almost all of these recent shooters have had a blueprint on social media somewhere. So paying attention to that stuff, telling your parents about that stuff, talking to your kids about what to watch for, I think is important. Those, those are the things we can do, but 
I, I don't know what the answer is. And I just wish people would stop screaming at each other and just kind of come together and figure it out. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and again, like I was mentioning that other gentleman, I'm not sure if he talks about that at all. The only, I just heard parts of his interview right, right, and, uh, right, yeah. and I do believe he, uh, because Nikki Stone had asked him about Uvalde and, uh, he, his answer to that was that they were, he felt they were not mentally prepared or trained properly yeah. in that sense to, to be prepared. Cause he said, it's not just the body that has to be prepared. It was the mind. And he also did bring up budgets. He said, schools are yeah. not investing enough in security basically, or, or arming, yeah. protecting the school, uh, the students, uh, well enough. Um, but again, you know, to your point, it's, we need to be listening to one another, having conversations, listening. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Uh, though you brought up a, a good point too, about social media. And I think that sometimes that's even more frustrating when it's the signs are there, when mm -hmm. the, you know, the young people are, are posting that they're literally going to do this and then it happens. Um, and yeah. I don't think that has an easy answer either, other than, like you said, watching for it, reporting posts like that. Um, although I think in some cases it's even more frustrating that some of these, these gentlemen were on people's radar. We're on, yeah. you know, and it still happened. So yeah. I, I just, I just, I guess the answer is just keep being vigilant and, and reporting mm -hmm. things that look like that suspicious or, or frightening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's, the internet is a dark, vast web of unknown things. Yeah. And, you know, most of these people are leaving some kind of blueprint. I mean, even Dylan and Eric did in Columbine, you know, they were on like AOL chat rooms or something, leaving blueprints. Like it's there. It's just who's seeing it and are we taking it seriously? You know, we also don't want to get into minority report territory where we're like arresting people on pre-crime right so like if yeah what is that line and it's a very delicate you know it's not a it's not illegal to say you hate people on social media but I, I guess if you're making threats then that's something that can be acted upon yeah. And I, I know when I taught, I think it was social media course, I forget the law, but it, what you said is more or less uh, exactly right. Like you can't, I mean, we have freedom of speech, but if you say mm -hmm. I'm going to go to a certain place at a certain time and I'm threatening, that's a specific threat. And that is, that can be, that's reportable. Um, but you know, and that's, that brings up, a, that could be a whole different conversation. The internet, my gosh, policing the internet is such, you know, I'm watching these documentaries and I think I need to stop. I just watched the other day <laughs> about Hunter Moore. And I thought, how did I get through life? I had never even heard this guy, uh, but basically making money off of, you know, hacking into accounts, having people hack into accounts and posting nudes of, of women. They were traumatized because they did not, you know, allow yeah. this. And, and I'm thinking, and it's so hard. The FBI had to build this case. It took two years and he still didn't mm. get enough time or enough yeah. fine as far as I'm concerned yeah. because of the lives that were destroyed. But it's such a, uh, policing the internet is is its own animal. It's, it's a it's whole new space. And the thing is we have to start treating Facebook, Twitter, and social media like a public space. And how would we regulate that? That's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at some people's posts, you, I think they sometimes forget, right? <laughs> it is a public. We space. can see you. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> uh, um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, so what 
as a mother, then how have you talked to your, your children, your daughters, right? You have twin daughters. Mm -hmm. How have you talked to them and how do you talk to them now? And I mean, it is terrible that that would have to be a conversation like, okay, let's get back to school clothes and let's talk about safety. But I mean, it's, it's realistic because that's where we're at right now. What do you say to your daughters and what's, what's some kind of conversations that you have? It's, it's really hard. Um, cause I don't know if I'm doing it right. Obviously I've made a devil's bargain to kind of play the odds game and to assure them that the odds of being in a mass shooting are very, very slim. And so they should not live in fear. Um, but you know, you weigh that against, it could happen. It happens in, in many communities in many different spaces. If I tell them not to live in fear, are they going to be prepared? But do I want to over-prepare them and then they live in fear? It's, it's a, a shell game. So I have kind of just said to them, you know, what I said to you, like watching social media, watching for signs. If you see something somebody's saying, if you notice somebody's being kind of ostracized or bullied, let's, let's draw attention to that. Now, I will say that in the 90s, especially after Columbine, there was this idea that you know, the outsider, right? Like the kids that were bullied and made fun of that. Number one is not really true. Eric and Dylan were kind of popular at Columbine amongst their group. Um, you know, they weren't going to win like homecoming King, but they, they had a group of friends and they were popular within that group and a lot of these other shooters as well. So that's, that's not really borne out in evidence. But also, you know, it's kind of like this generation, I just don't see that kind of, they're very inclusive. My, my girls, I, I hear from them all the time that like, okay, so I have this podcast, Gen X, this is why, where we look, my sister and I are watching Gen X stuff that we grew up with and talking about like how crazy it was, right? So we're watching Little House on the Prairie and I'm watching this episode last night where Nancy, Nellie's replacement, Nancy, is clearly making fun of this fat kid and they're calling him fat and they're calling him blubber and they're calling, and my daughters are like appalled by this. They are like, nobody talks that way, mom. No one talks that way at our school. No one, I'm not saying it's like kumbaya, everybody gets along, but it's much more inclusive than we're seeing. So that gives me hope and maybe we in these younger generations will see these numbers start to fall. I don't know, but I've chosen in the meantime to talk to my kids about just themselves being inclusive, um, being vigilant, being aware. I have not spoken to them about what to do if it actually happens. I'm hoping their teachers will have that conversation with them. I can't bring myself to do it because I just know too much and I can't the details that I have learned from interviewing 30 or 40 of these survivors are, it's like, I call it kind of like, um, it's almost like throwing a fireball at somebody. Like, I'm just going to keep these things inside of me so that no one else has to hear them. And I don't know if I could have a conversation with them about what to do in the moment. So I talk more prevention, more calming fears, more, you know, that kind of route. Um, but when I, you know, when I'm dropping them off somewhere, I'm always looking for second exits. I'm always, but however, when they were smaller, I know I'm talking in a circle here. I'm sorry. <laughs> when they were smaller, I do remember saying to them, always look for that second exit. And it was after the Aurora shooting in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, 
always look for the second exit, but I always couched it under fire prevention. You know, it's just safe to know where the exits are at all times in case you have to get out of a place, blah, blah, blah. So when they were a little smaller, I used to kind of to hide it under that, that um, category. But I don't know. I don't know what the right thing to do is um, in terms of how to talk to our kids. That's one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled to be in the role that I'm in because I'm interviewing so many therapists, so many clinicians, so many people who are who are experts in this and can kind of disseminate that information through me to the public, right? So that's kind of my hope for this is those questions that parents are Googling in the middle of the night, like, how do I talk to my kids about Uvalde? It, um, you know, hopefully they can find answers. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure absolutely, you know, I don't think I need to be a parent to know that I am certain you're not alone because yeah. I have most of my friends are parents and it's that question of, am I doing the right thing? I'm sure yeah. that you are certainly not alone in that. And everyone has to do what they feel is right because you can't, you know, I mean, you're doing what you feel is best. Yeah. Um, but like you said, talking to the professionals, the mental health professionals, that's great that you're putting out information that can be useful and valuable so that it, it could be solutions and answers for parents who are wondering how to handle it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I will tell you that, um, you know, we're in Pennsylvania, we have an election coming up. <laughs> One thing that scares me about our, our governor uh, candidate Mastriano is that he wants open carry in Pennsylvania and he wants it to become a second amendment sanctuary state. And that scares me because I don't, I can't imagine walking into Wegmans and there's people with ARs strapped to them. To me, that's living in fear. And that's the exact thing I don't want for my kids in school. I don't want them living in fear. So like, I don't want to live in fear either. So that's kind of where I'm at with this. Yeah. Like I was watching, there was a political town hall with uh, Beto O'Rourke down in Texas and it was about abortion. And there's two or three guys who come in with ARs strapped on them and they're just standing there. And like, why, why are you like, they could murder everybody in that room if they wanted to. And that's just, it's terrorizing. You're terrorizing people, in my opinion. So that's kind of that terror that we feel when we think about that, or we're in those spaces is not what I want to send my kids to school with every day. So that's why I made the choice that I made. Am I under preparing them and it'll come back to haunt me? I don't know. Like that's every mother's dilemma, right? Am I doing the right thing? But I just know what I want for them is, you know, the antithesis to, what I'm seeing happen in those spaces with open carry. Yeah. Now, and I'll say it cause I am ignorant. I'll admit that I'm ignorant. So open carry means that you can actually be in a public place and have your gun exposed, right? Is that? Yeah. So normally like you have concealed carry and open carry and you have to have a special permit for that. And sometimes you'll see like your average person in Garrity's and they have like a little concealed revolver or something and they have a special permit that they've gotten for that. But the further and further, you know, on the other side, and I'm not talking about your general run of the mill Republicans and Democrats. I'm talking about the, the extremes of that. They want no permit, open carry. Anybody could just walk down the street with a gun, a big gun, a little gun, whatever. That's disturbing to me. Yeah, that's, and, and honestly, I knew that, um, 
that uh, Mastriano is there or Mastriani? I forget. I think how you it's say Mastriano. It. Mastriano. Yeah, I knew that uh, he's on the extreme side, but I um, you're you're enlightening me because now I am scared. Because no, to your point, I don't want to be picking up sushi at Wegmans and being next to someone with an AR-15. I, you know, I mean that that would scare the crap out of me actually. And that's yeah, that's not the world that I want to live in. So no, and to come back to to come back to being a police officer. How do you know who who are the good guys and who are the bad guys when you walk into a situation like that? You can't, there's nothing about me that says good guy with the gun as opposed to bad guy with the gun. Do they think people dress up in like the black and white burglar stripes when they're (laughs) bad guys? (laughs) Like, I don't know how you identify that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just a a situation that I would not want to live in. And that's why I'm kind of, scared of that outcome. Mm, Yeah, me too. Um, And I would like to believe, and again, I'll admit I am ignorant when it comes to these things, just because, uh, well, let's say he were to be elected. There Mm. are things that would need to change uh, in order for that to happen. Yes. Okay. Okay. So we can hope that that won't happen because at least I I hope that it doesn't happen. Yeah. That's, that's a scary idea. Well, and I think there's always kind of been radical ideas in politics but there's always been enough of the hive mind of rational people to stop things i see that hive mind of rationality kind of dwindling and that's what scares me yeah yes i i would agree with that things are getting (laughs) rational seems to be dissipating yes yeah yeah so it's really scary yeah well uh, let's leave on a a hopeful note and Mm -hmm. uh again to to build on your point i like what you said amy you know you see it with your daughters and i do agree with you the younger generation is much more inclusive and so hopefully that will go far as far as uh you know not having or reducing or totally eliminating in the future school shootings. That would be great. I mean, I don't know that, I don't think we can ever envision the land of like Skittles, you know, where there's unicorns yeah. and like, because, and, and that's not realistic, right? I mean, there's always going to be opposition and everything, but I do believe like they are much more inclusive and a much more, um, you know, they want good. They want good for the world and for themselves. Yeah. So I think that will, that will matter. So uh, let's hope it matters sooner rather than later, but it will matter. Yeah, let's hope. I think yeah. so. So any other um, as before we wrap up, I, I'd like I want to thank you so much. This is such an important topic and I appreciate your input. And again, obviously, neither one of us, I'd like to say none of us are we're not trying to say this is how you should do things or whatever. I just, Amy's sure. an advocate. Amy's done research. She's much more familiar with the topic than me. And I appreciate you sharing your input, what you've seen, how you feel about this. Uh, any, any other closing words or anything that you did want to say that you just didn't have the opportunity to say? Yeah, I did want to say that there are a lot of good groups out there doing things that, um, you know, will make a difference in your life. Like there's groups out there who dedicate their time and energy and money to providing safe, safe storage kits for guns, you know, asking ways, helping you as a parent navigate the world of asking your kids, your kids, friends, parents, do you have a gun in the house? Is it safely stored? You know, stuff like that. So there are groups that do things that aren't necessarily like, let's all take the guns and burn them in the middle of the street. Like there's other groups doing things. So for example, No Noriety is a good group out there that's like focusing on how media covers these stories and not using the shooter's name and stripping them of the notoriety that, you know, they sometimes seek in these acts. 
So things like that. So if you're not somebody who's like, oh, we need to get rid of all the guns or, oh, we need a ton of guns. If you're somewhere kind of in the middle and just looking for ways to make incremental change, you know, those groups are, are a good way to start. Yeah. And I love what you mentioned there about the notoriety, because I do think that is a dangerous thing. It's like, and I, that's, I said, I mentioned before I yell at the TV, I, I do yell at the news, uh, you know, because it's like saying their name, showing their picture. It's Mm -hmm. like, and some of them are outright saying they want to be famous and let's, let's not give that to them. And let's not make that some kind of carrot that dangles out there. It's sick, but we don't want to give them that incentive. Yeah, I advise anyone, if you're talking about school shootings or writing about them, call them the shooter. That's it. Don't use their names. I mean, I use Dylan and Eric just because I grew up with Columbine, and that was a good instance of the media projecting those two gentlemen to notoriety. And um, I'm proud to say that I don't really know the names of the other shooters that have kind of come recently, and that's okay. I don't want to know them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, it, yeah. When you say, I even think I don't remember the last names of the Columbine shooters because, you know, I was born in 71. That was a really, yep. uh, a key shooting, uh, event, an event that I remember being, uh, you know, frightened by, but, but learned about, you know, yeah. and I do remember their names, but you're right. These, the, the, and I have to say, sadly, that there are often these days, it feels like so many shootings yeah. that I, I find myself saying, and I feel horrible that that's where it's at. It's like, Oh wait, was that the other shooting? Oh mm-hmm. wait, we have another one. Like, cause I'll see yeah. like tweets all of a sudden and I'll go, did something just happen? Like what? And then I'll Google and just see, Oh, another shooting, you know, which is really sad that that's where we're at right we're now. We're starting to become multi-generational too. I, in the book, there's a mother who was in a shooting and her son was in a shooting. Oh my Same gosh. State, 30 years apart, you know, whatever. So that's happening now. Wow. That's, yep. that's pain that shouldn't happen. That's, exactly. that's terrible. Well, again, I want to thank you so much, Amy. Uh, I've learned a lot and I hope our listeners, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything that you heard or said, uh, this is this, we need to have conversations like this. So, uh, maybe we gave you an idea, explore something, learn something different, check out some of the resources, check out the book. Um, and again, I want to mention the name of the book. Could you say that again, Amy? Yeah, the book is called, if I don't make it, I love you survivors in the aftermath of school shootings. It's from, we got the idea from a text message that one of the children from Parkland sent to their mother. So, um, it's, if I don't make it, I love you. And it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever, anywhere books are sold. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm choking now. Thank you so much. I do appreciate your time. And um, again, this has been a heavy topic. I know uh, I wasn't going to laugh, but we had some opportunities, not obviously talking about shootings, but other things in life, because, you know, we had other parts of conversation where we had a little bit of lightness, but we know this is not a light topic. It's a heavy topic. So thank you for listening. Um, and I, I appreciate you, as I always say, from the bottom of my heart and the bottom of my wine glass and stay safe out there.